This morning, I'm going to need you to do me a favor. I think the expression is like, hold on to your hat. Is that right? Hold on to your wig. Hold on to your hair. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I got more to do than we've got time to do it. So I'm going to need you to hang on to whatever the thing is you're hanging on to. And uh, I'm going to try to talk fast to consider what is a really fascinating scene for us focused on the transfiguration story. So I want you to put your finger in Luke 9, and I want you to turn back like we did last week. I want you to turn back to uh, Exodus 32, Go ahead and find that and put a finger there. And 1 Kings 18 and 19, find that, put a finger there. If you're phone savvy, you can probably flag that on your devices so you can bounce around really quickly. We're going to run through a number of stories that I think are going to help us see this morning's story uh, more clearly and more vividly. I actually just did this without knowing that I was doing it in the hang on to your hat or whatever. Some phrases like that make their way into our vocabulary, into just kind of common speech, because they say something that's like really big in a simple idea. One such phrase is the notion of I had a mountaintop experience. Right? It's just kind of common the way we would speak to one another to describe something that probably would take a paragraph to unpack. We're saying something bigger than that. Like I, I had an experience. Think about what you're saying when you say you had a mountaintop experience. You had, had an experience that gave you perspective, the way standing on a mountain and kind of seeing everything gives. Maybe you're saying, I had a, a moment or an experience that gave me some sense of clarity, Maybe you're saying, I had, had a moment that allowed me to, to get alone and kind of focus on the things that, that matter, to reflect, to collect ourselves, and sometimes in coming off of mountaintop experiences to determine a, a different path that you're going to take going forward. This moment of clarity gave you a time to refocus for what you're going to do after that. We, we say simply, it was a mountaintop moment for me, and everybody knows what you're talking about. Well, this concept of mountaintop experiences is actually far richer than just our own experience of hiking to the top of Table Rock. It actually goes back to the way that God's chosen to relate to his people throughout human history. God chose to relate to his people through mountaintop moments and experiences. In fact, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that the Bible could be described as a movement between mountains, as a story, a move from one mountain to the next. We've got some of these mountains at the very start. Noah's boat coming to rest on a mountain, which incidentally is in Kentucky. I had no clue, right? Uh, uh, but Noah's boat comes to, and that was a good joke. Noah's boat comes to rest on, on a mountain. We have the famous story in Genesis 22 that there are overtones of in our story this morning of Abram sacrificing Isaac on a mountain. And probably the two high water mountaintop experiences in the Old Testament are those that we're going to consider this morning. First, Moses' interaction with God in Exodus 19 and running forward all the way to chapter 34. And then this scene with Elijah and the prophets of Baal told in 1 Kings 18 and 19. We might summarize, big idea, big things happen on mountains. Big things happen on mountains. I want us to look at three scenes, two from the Old Testament and then one from our text this morning. Moses in Exodus 34. Moses in Exodus 34. I'm going to begin reading there in verse 1, and then I'll skip a significant section and pick up in verse 28. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can follow with me there. He got up in the morning, this is Moses, and taking two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai, just as the Lord had commanded him. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name. This is God proclaiming his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious God. He's slow to anger, 
abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of their father's iniquity on their children and their grandchildren to a third and a fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low to the ground and worshiped. Then he said, My Lord, if I've indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us, even though this is a stiff-necked people. Forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. Verse 28, Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat food or drink water. He wrote the Ten Commandments, the words of the covenant, on the tablets. As Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he descended the mountain, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of speaking with the Lord. When Moses and Aaron, I'm sorry, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near. Four points from the story quickly. God takes first, God takes Moses to a mountain. He takes Moses to a mountain in order to meet with him. Come here and meet with me. We're not really sure why. I mean, perhaps it's because a mountain is, uh, is set off, like just the, the landscape itself denotes something that would be important or significant. Maybe it's that a mountain's majestic. Maybe it's set apart and isolated. Who knows? But God takes Moses there so he can be alone with him. And he also tells him to put some barriers up so that other people can't just saunter up the mountain and hang out with God. This is a special place for Moses to interact with God. Secondly, God shows off his glory on that mountain. God puts his character on display. The God who dwells in unapproachable light here meets with a man as one meets with a friend. And he shows him his character. These, uh, in the early verses there, these are repeated refrains found throughout the Old Testament. You could just do a study of that this week if you'd like. This uh, nature of God being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. We, we might summarize that whole bucket and say this is God's glory. He puts his glory on display for Moses. He shows off his attributes. Thirdly, Moses leaves the mountain changed. His face is glowing. It's radiant. He's reflecting the light of God's presence, such that they have to put a veil on it to cover it. People notice that he's seen the glory of God. And fourthly, Moses leaves the mountain with some clear instructions, something that he's to go and do. In fact, here, he's got the instructions, the Ten Commandments. He's taking the word of God down to the people and displaying, here's what God said Go and obey that, okay? Got to hold these truths in your head here. God takes Moses to a mountain, shows off his glory. Moses is changed, and Moses leaves with some clear instructions. Okay, got it? Hold that in your head. Now let's go to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18 and a snippet of chapter 19. I'll begin reading in verse 20. The words are on the screen here. I know I'm reading quickly, so if you'll just kind of hang in there with me. If you can't follow, if you just note it, and uh, you can look back at the stories. This story, for those of you that have been in and around the church, is going to be a really familiar one. If you did flannel graph boards as a kid, you flannel graphed this baby, all right? This is a famous story. Elijah in 1 Kings 18, verse 20. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah approached all the people, and he said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. And Elijah said to the people, Am I the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men? Let's get two bulls, have them given to us. 
They'd choose one bowl for themselves, cut it to pieces, place all the wood on it, but not light the fire. I'll prepare the other bowl and place on it the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call on the name of your God. I'm going to call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers with fire, he is God. And all the people said, it's fine. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since you are so numerous, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first. Then call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bowl that he gave them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound and no one answered. Then they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he's a god. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandering away. Maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. They shouted loudly, and they cut themselves with knives and spears, according to their custom, until blood gushed all over them. All afternoon, they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people approached him. He repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel will be your name. And he built an offering with the stones in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about four gallons. Next, he arranged the wood, cut up the bowl, placed it on the wood. He said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned on the wood. And then he said a second time, they did it a second time. And then he said a third time, they did it a third time so that water ran all around the altar and even filled the trench with water. At the time for the offering of the evening's sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And that at your word, I've done these things. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord or God, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And the Lord's fire fell, consumed the burnt offering, the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then a bit later in chapter 19, verse 11, God says, to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by, and a great and mighty wind was tearing the mountains and was shattering the cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a mantle and went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. What do we see? God takes Elijah up a mountain. Here again, you could have done this showdown anywhere, but God says, we're going to put it in the octagon on the hill, right? Everybody's going to be able to see what's going down. I want to demonstrate my power on the mountain. And then in chapter 19, he calls him back up the mountain to speak to him tenderly in this moment of silence. Secondly, God shows off his glory on the mountain. He burns up the offering, licks it up against all odds. And what's the conclusion that the people reach? They say, the Lord, the Lord, he is God. They see his power on display 
And this glory is recognized as the true God, the maker of the heavens and earth. Elijah leaves the mountain changed, idea number three. They have to wrap his face up. Sound familiar? Later, this very one's going to be taken into heaven, not even going to taste death. His very life, not only his countenance, but his life is changed as a result of walking with God. And then, outside the range of our text, but he leaves the mountain with clear instructions. Go tell my people a word. Go to a rebellious people who've turned aside to follow after gods, after other gods, and say, the Lord, the Lord, he is God. After all, that was actually the point of the story with the prophets of Baal. The point wasn't to prove God's power to the the false worshipers of the day, but to prove that he is God to the Israelites. To say, don't be like these foolish people who are running after these gods. You stay true to the one living God. So show my people that they have nowhere else to turn. And then, Jesus in Luke chapter 9. Luke 9, verses 18 to 36. Remember the paradigm that we've established. God takes people to a mountain. He shows off his glory. Those who see his glory are changed, and those who are changed leave with some clear instructions. It's this pattern that Jesus is stepping into with a scene that's really strangely neglected among preaching. I mean, think about when the last time was you heard a sermon on the transfiguration. It's kind of a weird text. Like, what's going on here? Why do we have this story and why do we have it included here? I want you to remember what's come just before in verses 18 through 20. What's just happened? Peter has confessed what? This is God's Messiah. You could think, I don't think it's a stretch to think, the same conclusion that's reached in 1 Kings 18, the Lord, the Lord, he is God, is the conclusion that Peter reaches in chapter 9. Jesus is God. And now we're going to see that on display. Verse 28. About eight days after this conversation, he took Peter, John, and James and went to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, uh, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those who were And those with him were in a deep sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men were standing with him. And as the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud appeared over them and overshadowed them. And they became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son the chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent. At that time, told no one what they had seen. Jesus takes his disciples to a mountain. Just like Moses before and Elijah before, he wants to demonstrate something about who he is. And so he takes his boys to this place. 
This is a big juncture in the book of Luke. In fact, it's, uh, you might see it as the path turns very clearly here. If you've ever been on an extended hike, you know the trail markers. You turn here and you're going to go for 15 more miles. If you detour here, you're going to go for a half mile and get to the parking lot. This is a big detour point. We know that because in Matthew and Mark, this scene is placed right at the middle section of the book. It's right before the text turns to the story of the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Luke brings it up to Luke 9. It's not at the midway point of his book, but it is at the same scene. Everything that follows Luke 9 and this story is going to be a beeline to the cross. It's going to be a sprint to the cross. It's going to be, if you look in Luke 9, 51, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. And all that follows from Luke 9 forward is going to be tracing this beeline to Jerusalem where he's ultimately going to be crucified. And so Luke wants to hold up for us not only the testimony of Peter that Jesus is the Messiah, but in the transfiguration to show that, yes, that testimony is right. And even though what's going to come in Jerusalem is not what you would expect from the exalted Messiah, what has happened here is going to be so etched in your bones, at least the hope is, that all that comes following this is going to begin to make sense. They go up in the mountain in a cloud, just like before. A sign of God's presence descends in that place. If you're Peter and James and John, you know the story, which they do. You go to a mountain with Jesus, and a cloud envelops the mountain. This is an edge-of-the-seat moment, right? It's like, this is what Moses did. This is what Elijah did. And now here we are. What's going to go down? We're about to have another mountaintop moment with God. And that's actually exactly what happens. Because God shows off his glory on the mountain. They go to the mountain. And God puts his glory on display. Here, not merely speaking through a cloud. Not merely burning up a sacrifice. Not in a still, gentle whisper. But through Jesus. Who appears with, incidentally, Moses and Elijah. Remember, mountains and glory go together. And in this scene, the disciples are connected to the glory of God through the person of Jesus Christ. We're told that Moses and Elijah are chatting about his departure. Also translated there, about his exodus. I mean, it would be a bit of speculation here, but wouldn't it be fascinating to hear the Exodus leader number one talking to Exodus leader number two about what's getting ready to go down? We have this scene of the greats from history, someone of significance, speaking with Jesus and Jesus' glory being revealed. There are four big signs embedded in this passage that Jesus is the one in whom the glory of God resides. First, he's with Moses and Elijah. I've already mentioned this. These are big deal characters in the story who are not alive then. They appear. 
and they're with Jesus, placing him alongside the greats of Israelite history. But more than that, many will will suggest, and I think this is right, that Moses is symbolic of all of the law, the Old Testament. Elijah is symbolic of all the prophets. So when we get to Luke 24 and Jesus says, hey guys, I want to tell you something. All the law and the prophets were pointing to me. This scene at the transfiguration is putting that on display. Moses and Elijah were preparatory for the coming of Christ. Secondly, he's white. Radical white. A sign of purity still to this day. And and something, I mean, if you've ever been to, to Middle Eastern culture, I mean, you just don't wear white there. It gets dusty. It gets dirty. It shows all that is around. So his appearance, this radical white that Luke goes out of his way to say, I mean, you can't even create here on this earth, demonstrates the purity, the holiness that is Christ. He's, his glory is seen vividly. Thirdly, light. He, light envelops him. Light as with Moses, light as the fire descending at Elijah. Light isn't something that you see, but you see what the light makes clear. You see the light of God in the person of Jesus. Carl Truman illustrates it this way, and I think it's really helpful. You've probably seen a kid do it at some point. Take a flashlight and put it in their mouth, right? And what happens? The light makes their cheeks glow. Okay. So he says this is what is a sense of what's happening here in the transfiguration, that the light of God is radiating through the flesh of Jesus and making it glow, helping us see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then we have a voice from heaven, fourthly, showing him to be the glorious one. Notice, this time God doesn't pass before them, but we have a voice that puts the spotlight on Jesus. He isn't like Elijah and Moses, who simply saw God, but he is God. He is the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. And if you wonder about the turning point juncture of this, note the consistent parallel to the baptism of Jesus. These are the same words that are given at the baptism as Jesus inaugurates his ministry. Now at the critical juncture where he's going to turn to Jerusalem, the crescendo of his ministry, the father holds out once again, this is him. And you're going to need to remember this is him because things are getting ready to go down. The voice speaks, this is my beloved son. Again, this is an ancient Israelite. What would this text have called to mind? Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac. My beloved son that I'm taking to the mountain to sacrifice. And here we have God holding up a beloved son who's getting ready to head to Jerusalem to offer himself as a sacrifice. The disciples, thirdly, leave the mountain changed. Like Paul on the road to Damascus, the light of the glory of God seen in the face of Christ is transformative. 
They're first terrified. It's angelic. The language is similar to uh, the shepherds, to the angels when uh, the incarnation happens, when Jesus' birth is announced. They see this display of the beauty of Jesus, his glory being displayed, and they're terrified. And then they concoct skiing. Hey, let's just build some tents and hang out here while this is cool. Let's just, let's just chill, chill with the glory of God on the mountain. Uh, certainly uh, reminiscent of the Old Testament celebrations when they would highlight the work of God among the people and they would build booths of how God had prepared them and provided for them during the wilderness. And they say, hey, we've got him now. See his glory. Let's just build a booth and hang out for a while. But they leave, fourthly, with clear instructions. Notice, it isn't merely, this is my son, but it's, this is my son, listen to him. Do what he says. They get some clear instructions. Think here, Moses in Exodus uh, 19 to 34. God's word, given in the law, go and obey. They get, this is my son, He's not going to give you a new law. He is in himself the embodiment of that. So what he says is God's word, and it's meant to be obeyed. And certainly a life of transformation, as we'll mention in just a moment, conformity to that word. But it seems here more the focus is on, uh, listen to what he says about his coming death. Note, if you just scan Luke 9, you're going to see several times this prediction of the death that's getting ready to come. So it seems like, and this isn't a stretch, think Messiah, he's going to rule and reign, and he's kind of hinting that, or not even hinting that anymore, that he's getting ready to get killed. This kind of messes with your mind. So having a mountaintop experience where you see the glory of God and, and the Father says, listen to him, might be really helpful for you. Say, so you know what he's saying about his death? Maybe we need to clue in to that. Maybe we need to believe him when he tells us this. So, go to a mountain. They meet with God. They leave change. And they leave with some clear instructions. Now, here's the second, second big idea. And don't, don't fret. We're going to do this super quick. You're not going to be here near as long as you think. Second big idea. Big things happen on a mountain. Bad things happen at the bottom of a mountain. Big things happen on a mountain. Bad things happen at the bottom of a mountain. I just want to draw your attention to this. Bad things happen at the bottom of a mountain. We won't even read these texts. What happens at the bottom of the mountain in uh, the Exodus story? In fact, we were the other side of the bottom of the mountain because Moses was having to go back up to meet with God because he had gotten so ticked off when he came down from the mountain because what were the people doing? They were at the bottom of the mountain, uh, we just threw some gold in the fire and out came this golden calf and we started worshiping it because we just thought Moses was never going to come down the hill and lead us. Bad things happen at the bottom of the mountain. The story you never heard in 1 Kings uh, 18 and 19. Elijah and the broom tree at the bottom of the mountain. This is uh, 1 Kings 19. verse. This is in between the text that we just read. Prophets of Baal, God shows off. Speak in a clear voice. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like one of those by this time tomorrow. 
Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough. Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Bad things happen at the bottom of a mountain. This is the the guy that just flexed God's glory to the prophets, saying, I just want to be done. Notice verse 23 of Luke 9. The disciples of Jesus and life in this world. Then he said, to those who are just going to say, hey, let's build a booth and hang out on the mountain. If anyone wants to follow me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory, the Father and the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God demonstrated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What is Jesus saying here? If we follow the path of a Savior, then we're going to follow the path that he walked. Death, then glory. Bad things are going to happen at the bottom of the mountain. We should expect the same. Physical death, certainly. Our lives and our bodies will break down, decay. But also here specifically, death to self. We're going to have to die before we die. It's a warning that life at the base of the mountain is going to be death. We're all going to die. Physically and for those who want to follow after Christ, Spiritually, our life is going to be one of consistent death. It's no wonder then that these, this language of transfiguration is picked up twice in the New Testament by later writers to describe the life of holiness for the people of God. First is Romans 12, 2, the classic text that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we know what is holy and pleasing, worshipful as unto God. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.18, see if this is not transfiguration dripping all over it. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking at the mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is spirit. Believers... Those who have seen and tasted the glory of God in the face of Christ are transfigured. They are transformed. And the form by which that transformation takes is a radical death to self, a willingness to die before you die, to your desires, to your loves, to your selfish pursuits, to your sin patterns, such that you would forfeit your life for the sake of the glory that is to come. Why in the world would anyone be willing to do that? Because 
of Jesus on the cross. Verse 21, he strictly warned and instructed them to tell no one, saying, this is after Jesus, or after Peter says Jesus is the Messiah. It's necessary that the Son of Man suffers many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. Jesus has greater work to do than chilling in a tent with a few of the disciples. He is following the path that followers of Jesus will walk. Death, a radical death that will do for followers of Jesus what they could not do for themselves, which is satisfy the wrath of God for their sin. The perfect one would lay down his life. And his death... And then his subsequent glorious exaltation would be a picture of what would come for all those who are willing to die to themselves in this life. The Son of Man, language reminiscent of Daniel 7, the rule and reign of this victorious coming one should motivate the early disciples and all subsequent followers of Jesus to be willing to endure the bad things that happen in the valley because of the glory that we've seen on the mountain. This is good news for Jesus. It's good news for Jesus' people. Because what's going to happen to Jesus at the base of this mountain prepares for his exaltation, and it's a preview of our own. So friends, Jesus takes you to a mountain. He demonstrates his glory. He, by his spirit, brings transformation. And he sends you to die to yourself, to follow him at the base of the mountain until the day when we see him face to face. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for mountaintop moments. We thank you for uh, moments in our personal history when you've been good to us to show us who you are, what you've come to do in the world. We thank you for your church and the way that your word holds out for us, your glory in the face of Christ consistently week after week. We thank you that a God who dwells in unapproachable light would, would descend Uh, to meet with us, would put your character on display for us in a way that we can comprehend and that that glory would change us, that it would be transformative. And not transformative in the exalting sense, that we would uh, rise the ladder of success in this world, that we would emerge victorious here and now, but that that glory provokes in us a willingness to die, a willingness to uh, endure the bad things in the valley, knowing that as you went through Christ, we too will go, that the path to exaltation will be a path of death. Would you empower us to that end this morning as we sing and think about you? Would the beauty of a crucified Jesus be transfiguration-like for us? Would it change our countenance such that just on a random Sunday in Greenville, South Carolina, we would leave having met with you and being compelled to obey you? We ask that for the sake of Jesus. Amen.
Let's stand together. Respond through song.